a race for me to get into position before the lights come up. Have a hurt leg. My name is Katie. It's good to see all of you. Wonderful to see your faces like for reals, right? Uh, so wonderful. Um, yeah, and if you're joining us across the miles, it's really comforting to know that we've had this technology you know, during this difficult year that we could stay connected thanks to our production teams and all the wonderful work that um, our artists continue to do through all of that. So, so appreciate that connection. Um, and I've missed you. Broke my ankle in a few places you know, a few weeks ago. Had a big surgery. I realized, I learned that, you know, when you really break your ankle, um, you sort of break your foot off your leg. Not... Not a good thing. So thanks for everybody, though, who's um, been so compassionate. Oh, I've gotten to know so many people who've broken bones and this and that, you know. It's like a little community of support. So I so appreciate all of that. Um, and I was very happy to learn last weekend in the message that Ryan gave kicking off the new series, The Spirituality of Happiness. So happy to learn that my chances of happiness at the moment that I broke this ankle my chance at happiness one year from that moment is exactly the same as it would have been if I had won the lottery in that moment. It's like statistically a truth, right? Because we have this thing called impact bias that tells us that if something bad has happened, it's going to be a long road to hoe back to happiness. But the truth of it is... Um, you know, it's a hard choice for all of us at all times. Now, if, and if that's true, that statistic, we should be very curious about how this works. I'm, I'm very curious. Last weekend, Ryan also taught about how science and scripture are working together to reveal a spirituality of happiness and that we can pursue joy by building up our psychological immune system. Now, I have to admit that sounds kind of hard to me. That sounds like hard work. Like, I might have to pay a therapist a lot of money to get that psychological immune system where it needs to be. Um, but that's why we're going to take this with some fun, with some ease, and we're just going to study one hallmark of happiness, the hallmarks of truly happy people. We'll study one each week. And I'm kicking off... Um, the study of those individual hallmarks this week, going to talk about the hallmark of divine connection. And I just want to say you're already a natural at it. So the things we're going to learn today are things we're already good at. We just need to let ourselves do more of them. And we're going to dive into Psalm number one for our Bible wisdom. Our anchor verse is actually founded within that psalm. But to study this hallmark of divine connection, we're going to look at the whole psalm. It's um, really a poem. It's about this long in your Bible on just one column. So um, we're able to look at the whole thing, and this will be fun. The book of Psalms is also fun because it is a picture book. In addition to poetry, it's filled with pictures. God is portrayed as a shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. God's portrayed as a king, a rock, a mother and a father. God's people are pictured as sheep or servants or dependent children or vines. We're even depicted as quivers. I'm sorry, arrows in the quiver of a parent. So lots of good pictures that we can learn from. Jesus taught wisdom in pictures too. When Jesus taught by using a picture of a father looking for a lost child or a woman searching for a lost coin, it was not new. Jesus was doing what poets and prophets and activists and teachers have always done. 
teaching a message through the use of a picture. And a quick caution about pictures in the Bible. Um, people who value Bible's wisdom are careful not to project our own meaning into a picture and just run off with it half-cocked. It's easy to do. So, for example, um, God is pictured as a father in numerous places in the Bible. If we latch on to something like that and try to make it uh, wholesale truth about exactly what God is, and we try to apply that supposed maleness factor of God, you know, just into our ordinary lives and relationships, we can get way off track. Take the picture too far. So it's fun to study a picture carefully and look for the really good meaning in it. So on to the subject at hand, beginning with a quiz. The first picture in the first psalm is a picture of what? First picture in the first psalm is a picture of what? Is it A, a garden, B, a fool, I'm sorry, B, a king, C, a fool, or D, a tree? Do you know what the first picture in the first psalm is? Well, we're just going to dive in, read it, look for that picture. You can read along with me at the top of your message notes if you've got the paper notes in the room or you are, have clicked on them online, or you can watch the screens. The psalm says, happy are those. So the first word in the psalm is happy. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord or the instruction of the Lord. And on his instruction, they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield fruit in season and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so happy. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the picture, they are like trees. They are like trees. So if you would, call up a picture of a tree in the video screen of your imagination. If it helps you to close your eyes, you could do that. But picture a tree. Is it a sturdy oak? A maple tree with a red and yellow leaf? Maybe an apple tree? Maybe it's loaded down with August fruit, or maybe it's alive with those pink and white blossoms we see in northern Colorado right now. Place your tree along a stream of water with clear, rushing water. And take notice in your mind's eye of the colors that you're seeing. Look at the colors. The red, the healthy fruit, the vibrant color of green leaves, the white of the foaming water, the blue of the sky behind the leaves of your tree. Look for a moment at your tree, and before you open your eyes, think of a word. What would you use to describe what you are seeing? Just call to mind a word. You can open your eyes. If I could read your minds, I would think that some of you maybe chose the word alive, vibrant, lush, rooted, productive. How about bending without breaking or flexible? That's one of the most amazing things a tree does. I wish my leg would have done that on that fateful day. You know, just bend but not break. It's amazing what trees do. And maybe someone said beautiful, just simply beautiful. 
where one of the most cherished songs about the good life and happiness is Louis Armstrong singing, What a Wonderful World. What a wonderful world. You know the first line of the song? I see, I see trees of green, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Well, the first psalm says that that tree can be a picture of your life. Your life can be rooted, productive, flexible, truly alive, powerful, marked by beauty. And the picture there in that psalm is to plant a question in our minds that we would ask, how can that be? How can my life be vibrant like that? And the answer is given in the first few words of the psalm, which describes the lifestyle of those persons who are happy. And the teacher does this first with three negatives. And we'll put these on the screen. If you're taking notes, these are the first fill-ins. Three negatives. First of all, happy people don't follow the advice of the wicked. And if I had these notes to publish over again for you, I'd, I probably would put the underline under advice, because that's really the important word. Where do happy people get their direction for life? So you could circle that word advice. They're careful where they get their advice. They also don't take the paths that sinners take. You could circle the word path. It's about which way are we going to walk. And they don't associate with and this, I think, is really important in our day right now with cynics and scoffers. They're not getting their fun energy from cynics and scoffers. These are not their friends. These people are not their friends. Three negatives, a warning from Scripture, much instruction throughout the Bible is devoted to exposing the wrong way tactics of people who are pursuing success at the expense of their own health or other people. And in this psalm, the bad guys, this is the warning, really, the bad guys end up with, not in the halls of influence. They don't have influence. Where there are gatherings to make judgments and important decisions, these people are not there. They have no place in the halls of influence. Um, they're not sitting in the assembly of the righteous because they wither on the vine and just blow away. Their, their tactics won't last. There really is no power there. And it's important for us to remember when we hear Scripture paint these sad outcomes, they're not acts of divine punishment. They're rather the predictable and inescapable results of conduct that just goes away against God's grain, the grain of God's will for creation. And it's a warning. It's a wisdom warning. And wisdom is always calling out to all of us, um, not just um, those who are making right choices in the moment, but we all play these different parts in the psalm at different points in our lives. And wisdom is always calling and coaxing us to strengthen that connection with God. Strengthen your connection with God and make your home and community with godly companions. Wisdom's calling through the psalm. And we've all been in the position where we needed this wisdom. Can you recall a childhood friend who was at best mischievous, but at worst worst, uh, dangerously naughty. This bad kid who's a bad influence. I mean, this kid knows how to steal. They know about sex. 
they lie to their parents, they lie to your parents. You never thought of doing any of these things, but they got you thinking, and now you're tempted to take their advice and follow them down an unfamiliar path. You never thought about laughing at the teacher's clothes. You never thought about laughing at a child with a disability. You never thought about betraying your siblings and mocking or gossiping things that happen in your house, you know, in the halls of the school or out in the neighborhood. But now things have changed in your world. And you're friends with a cynical scoffer, and they've introduced you to their not-so-wonderful world, and your way of being happy changes. It just happens in this life. The original you that instinctually loved and forgave and protected and asked for help when you needed it and believed the best in people, it's disappearing because you're friends with a cynic. And this is a world no parent wants their child to inhabit. God doesn't want us to inhabit this world. It's not wonderful. It's a world of disconnection from the powerful law of love. So three negatives, I think, you all get the picture. We all get the idea. We know it from personal experience. And then comes the positive. <clears throat> that happy people enjoy a lifestyle of spiritual learning. They get their power somewhere else. Happy people enjoy a lifestyle of spiritual learning. The Hebrew text says, surely the Torah of the Lord is their delight. The Hebrew word Torah can mean law. It's translated that way in most English Bibles. Uh, but my Old Testament professors said it's often, it's better translated as teaching or instruction. And that's the case right here, the instruction of the Lord. The Psalm says that people who are happy love learning about the nature of God, the nature of the universe, the nature of healthy community. We could say happy people enjoy learning about their own souls. When their souls are happy, they're grateful, they sing. They know themselves when their souls are sad. They seek out healing. They pray for mercy. They look for um, empathy and compassionate companionship. Spiritual learning is a natural lifestyle for one who is happy. It's what they do. It also says that happy people meditate on this spiritual wisdom. Thinking about it habitually, text says day and night, all times. It's just natural to them. The word translate, translated meditate there, it's a Hebrew word, Hagah. The same word occurs in a passage from Isaiah. As a lion growls over its prey, meditate there, or Hagah, same word as growl. So it's a curious thing. How can that be? How is it the same to contemplate as it is for a lion to growl? And we have to imagine reading this text as a traditional Jewish synagogue would in their service, even today, even today. The whole congregation would be standing. They read the entire psalm together. Some people read it loudly. Some people read it slowly. Everyone reads at their own pace. They, say, they all talk at the same time, but everyone going at a different pace. And just imagine the sound and the roar of that happening as some are loud and passionate, some are whispering and praying and contemplating. Some get through it twice, some get through it only halfway. And I've taught this passage before and said to the group like you all, hey, let's try that and then you'll see what it's like. American, Americans are terrible at this. The illustration doesn't work. 
everybody just you know looks at the teacher like they have three eyes and it just doesn't but you have to imagine yourself in the jewish synagogue and i think you get it they're meditating they're ruminating they're chewing on the instruction of the lord that's the picture here so meditation is contemplation and prayer and sometimes we voice it out loud i think singing in a choir has a lot of this effect. If, you, if you've loved being in a choir, you know what that's like to ruminate and let that sound fill the place. So a ha happy is the person who enjoys spiritual learning, who meditates on wisdom, and that happy person is like, we've already said it, a beautiful tree. That's what it looks like. And there's a plural form there. It says trees. I love that we are the trees. They are trees planted by streams of water. They don't panic in wintertime when the days are longer and there's more darkness because we trees know that darkness and light are alike to God. There's beauty in both. There's power in both. Times of rest are balanced with fruitfulness. Harvesting success year-round is not expected in the life of a tree. They know better. Trees adjust to drought. Trees get stronger. They weather the next drought even better. And here's the best part. Trees are connected to each other, not just aspen trees that we're aware kind of grow in those groves where there are, is a root system underneath, but there's now compelling evidence that the trees are talking to each other through hormone-like compounds that are carried on the breeze, sometimes across entire continents, bringing warning and, and tree-like wisdom for survival and thriving also underneath the ground at the subterranean level. And this is biological wisdom that our Native American siblings have, have taught their children um, for epochs, for centuries, for a long, long time. And science is noticing it now too, discovering it. Trees are connected. So the first word in the first psalm is happy, and happy human life is pictured as a tree. And if that doesn't do it for you, happiness is discussed a lot more throughout the 150 psalms. Other psalms discuss happiness um, in terms of caring for the poor. Psalm 127 speaks of happiness to be found in family life. Psalms 65 and 89 talk about happiness found connected in worship gatherings. Psalm 119 is a mammoth thing, pages long. It talks about happiness found in walking in God's ways or goes way deep into this instruction theme. And by extension, that's the Jesus way. So Jesus devoted his teaching to unpacking this whole idea in the modern language for people in his day. He taught, he, he taught the same thing. He wasn't the first rabbi to wake up and say, oh, the law is not just a mean bunch of rules that is almost impossible to keep. Um, he was teaching what's been always understood about the instruction of God by the Hebrew people. Modern scholarship is discovering it more and more, that the scribes and the, the theologians who uh, put together this book of Psalms and ordered it all, they're teaching us that the spiritual life is supposed to be a happy life. It's just that each generation has their own way of getting wrapped around the axle on that idea of law and really missing the point. But that voice of wisdom comes back, the, the, the Christ presence, Jesus Christ himself calling us always back 
to a true understanding of what the message of God is. I like the way Louise Bogan put it. I don't know in what spiritual sense she was speaking, but she was the first female poet laureate named in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. And she wrote, I cannot believe that the inscrutable universe turns on an axis of suffering. Surely the strange beauty of the world must somehow rest on pure joy. Aren't those beautiful words? And it changes the picture of what happiness is and what it means to be human. So don't miss this. The source of all happiness is divine connection. That's the point. That's where the source is. That's where the water gets tapped into by the roots. Divine connection, our connection to God. So now that we have a picture of those who are habitually connected to God, let's talk about some happiness practices. What do the human beings who do live like these trees do? <laughs> what do they do day in and day out? And I've put this in terms of happiness practices for lazy peacemakers. We call ourselves peacemakers here at Crossroads um, as, you know, that's our goal. Um, becoming peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And I like the idea that this first one, divine connection, I think it's not supposed to be too hard. I think it's supposed to be easy for us. So if you're looking for some simple things to bring into your life, maybe these are them. The first one is spending time in nature. Spending time in nature, and this is more spiritual than you realize. In the Christian tradition, we have two books of divine revelation. The first is the book of scripture. The second is the book of nature. Creation itself is considered to be a sacred text, which the presence of God is revealed to us in that text. There's a story about a, a hermit, Anthony, Saint Anthony of the desert, who lived in Egypt in the third to fourth centuries, and it's said that a philosopher once asked him, what would you do if one day you could no longer read scripture? And Anthony said, my book is nature, the nature of created things, and it is always on hand when I wish to read it. So even the deepest among us, the most learned Bible scholars, uh, people who don't read the Bible and don't appreciate it much, agree that the natural world is essential to our spiritual education, our healing, and our growth. So spending time in nature. Celtic Christian tradition makes a lot out of nature and what we learn about God in nature and what the Bible says. So the Celts were Ireland, northern England, these, these islands, um, the British Isles. And when the Roman Catholics brought the Christian faith north to those spaces, a very unique brand of Christian spirituality and theology emerged, and it's because the Celts already had this understanding of God rooted in nature. And then they were able to marry that seamlessly and easily with the things that they learned from the Roman Catholics. And it's very, very popular in our day because people are looking for inspiring and, and easy ways to connect with God through nature. And this connection to God, it's rooted in the example of Jesus as well. Jesus taught in earth-based language. He taught in stories around parables. He saw the things of nature in operation in our individual human lives. He enjoyed people in natural ways and out in nature feasting at a table 
drawing a crowd to a seashore to teach, capturing their attention in the spaces of nature. Um, my favorite is Jesus cooking breakfast for a friend on the seashore over an open fire. We love these kinds of things. The things that you love, Jesus loved. And it is a pathway to connecting with God. Another one is practicing silence. This doesn't come as natural to us because our heads are full of noise and it's difficult in our day and age to, to practice silence. But it's so important that we find time each and every day to simply be quiet. And I'll add that word quiet to that. Just be quiet. My little grandbaby David, when he wakes up from his nap or first thing in the morning and he sits in my lap, he's just quiet. He just is. That's his time to just be. He's not really thinking about scrambling around yet, right? He's just is. And that's a gift. But when we grow up, we have to find ways to intentionally keep that childlike um, soul connection and quietness through spiritual practice because the nature of our lives distracts us. So the spiritual practice of, of silence means withdrawing from speech and other noise on purpose every day. And if we don't, we'll have excess clutter and noise in our minds, and it will be impossible to experience either happiness or your connection with God when this is happening too much. So ideally, I suggest practicing silence for an hour every day. Uh, there are some times in our lives when that's not possible, but I find that if I pick that hour, mine is from the time I wake until the time I return to the house after exercising outside every day. And if that's just set aside, it, it works its medicine in my life. If a human being needs to talk to you, we don't have to be dogmatic about this. It doesn't matter because we're doing it every single day, right? If we have to pick David up from his nap and get him right into his car seat and, and destroy his moment of just being, it's not all going to go, you know, to heck in a handcart right then and there. He does it a lot. It's repetitive. Same with us. We can still be kind to people if they need to ask us something, but we have this practice, and believe me, your family members and workmates will figure out what you're up to, and they'll stop bothering you, right? So will your inner critic and all the voices in your head, because your ego will figure out you're not available for a conversation, and meaning you are the real person who's really in charge of your life and knows what's going on. And our ego and all that inner conversation, it just kind of, it goes away because we're practicing silence. So do that as it's convenient for you. The hardest one, hardest practice, is meditation. It's a little like silence, but it's not the same thing. There are a ton of meditation methods you could learn. Most of them take guidance and practice before they become natural. Meditation's a skill. It's like all skills, it takes some time, but once it becomes natural, it's pretty fun and pretty rewarding to have it, to have it in your, in your toolkit, so to speak. Um, we can meditate on all kinds of different things. People med do meditate on scripture. Prayer is a kind of meditation. You can meditate on poetry. Uh, we meditate on jazz. If you've ever been to a jazz club, people don't talk, it's against the code. Because people have come there to meditate on the music. And that's just the vibe. That's what you do. Um, an art museum 
kind of similar. It's a space that's sort of dedicated to meditation. And the more skill and experience you have with it, the more it works that magic in your soul. Um, we can meditate on our divine connection, which is what we do in the meditation practice called centering prayer, where you devote quite a bit of time to meditating on God, yourself, and, and your connection with God. But it all takes education and practice. So the offer I'd like to make to all of us, if you want to learn more about that, is sign up for the summer growth journey. Our summer growth journey is going to, it's called uh, Learning to Pray with Nature. Uh, we've selected a book that's got a lot of rich stuff from that Celtic Christian uh, tradition, um, similar to what we did with Again and Again at Lent. We'll do that this summer for six weeks. And if you're not a reader and you don't want to read through the book with me in the read-along, you also can, you know, you can get a daily text where you'll get a prayer and a verse and things like that. But we will practice, meditate. There'll be, there will be exercises that you can try on where you could learn more about meditation. So three things, spending time in nature, learning that practice of silence, picking that time, and um, learning to meditate, bringing meditation into your life. These are powerful practices for divine connection. Well, I'm very glad that we're doing this series right now. And I had some hesitation about it. You know, what would be best for us? What would be healthiest right now? I've heard psychologists say that we're experiencing a tsunami of grief, meaning we, people worldwide, because of the losses from the pandemic. And that's... Um, that's a really difficult thing, and that's a very important thing to pay attention to. And it's a fine line between learning the spirituality of happiness that's taught in Psalm 1 and practicing some kind of toxic optimism that Ryan talked about last week in, in the series. So it's important that we learn to do this um, in healthy, life-giving ways. So I think it's well worth these seven or eight weeks that we're going to spend on this topic. I saw this line between toxic optimism and uh, genuine discovery of happiness that God brings into our life. I, I learned it in a story that I was exposed to this summer. The story is um, called Pieces of a Woman. It's a novel. It's also one of the award-winning films of 2020. It's on Netflix right now. It's a story of Martha who loses her first baby in a heartbreaking home birth. The story starts with Martha at home. She's with her partner, Sean, and her midwife, and she's moving gracefully through the stages of labor, powerfully. And then at some point, the midwife notices the baby's heart rate has dropped dangerously low. There's no time for a hospital transfer. And both the midwife and Martha rise to the occasion. And this baby is born in a brief series of powerful pushes. And the, the, the birth companions celebrate the moment briefly. I mean, the baby cries and breathes. And there's this brief moment of celebration before the lights just go out on the birth scene. And Martha's baby has died. And she begins this long, slow journey of grief. And she's not only coping with her own loss, but she's coping with the people around her who are telling her how to be. Her relationship with Sean disintegrates. She's forced to testify in court against the midwife. 
She's pressured by her Holocaust survivor mother over burial plans. And her mother's perception that Martha is simply unwilling to pick, up, pick herself up and move on. It's very painful, this storyline. It's, it's painful to watch. But then there's another storyline that's going on, and it's happening at the soul level. And it's a different story altogether. It's a story of healing and inner power. Because Martha's being led along a healing pathway by grace. You don't get the idea that she has crafted this path, that she is using any techniques. No, she's being led by grace. And that storyline is illustrated through the picture of an apple tree, a tree, an apple tree. The apples are there from the very beginning. We see it in the imagery of the roundness of her belly as she's giving birth at home, the roundness of the perfect little child that came to fruition in hiddenness and darkness. Just a few weeks after the death, um, Martha tries to re-enter life. She goes to her workplace, and someone is sitting in her chair. Her maternity replacement is still there. Um, she, she's stirred up by this, and so she tries to regain some control. She goes to a mall, but she sees a child in the mirror. Um, she moves on to the grocery store, and she's accosted by one of her mother's friends with advice about pick, picking herself up and suing the midwife. And we see Martha then take solace in just inhaling the scent of an apple. You know, the crazy friend of her mother walks away, and Martha just breathes in a little bit of life. And apples return again and again through the whole movie. We see Martha eating one on the bus as she watches some children play, and then we see her discover a seed from her apple and just toggle it between her fingers. We see her at her kitchen table cutting away more seeds and sort of collecting them. She buys a book about sprouting. She places her seeds in, you know, between soft cotton strips and puts them, covers them and puts them in her refrigerator and checks on them from time to time. And by the time she reaches the trial, um, Martha is sprouting these seeds in her fridge, but she's in this uh, seat being cross-examined by an attorney who's simply demanding that she recall the picture of the child. You know, what did the child look like? How many toes and fingers did your child have? What color was the hair? And those kinds of things. And Martha is just sitting there in a daze. She cannot remember any of this. And then suddenly it comes to her one sensory detail that she can remember. She smelled like an apple. She smelled like an apple. And then she moves into the aftermath of the trial, and we slowly see her recovering. She unwraps the seeds. They're sprouting in her fridge. She reconnects a little bit with her mother. She's able to offer empathy and compassion to her mom and her sister when they're in need. Uh, we see her be able to um, remember her child's life, scattering the ashes off of a bridge that Sean helped build, and after those ashes fly into the breeze, the scene changes. And it takes us forward 10 years in her life. And in that scene, there's a child running through a field who scrambles up an apple tree. And we come to discover that the tree is what Martha planted in memory of the child that she lost. And the story doesn't tell us anything you know, heroic, we don't even know for certain that that child is Martha's child or that all things work together for good for people in the end. That's not the point. 
It's a story of being led by grace. And I am struck how difficult it is to travel through life. And I think the psalm speaks to that. But the psalm does begin with the word happy. <laughs> also how powerful we really are when we're connected to God and through God's presence in our lives, how much power there really is. Psalm 1 presents us with a choice to make about happiness. It is a this way or that way kind of choice. Happiness is handed to no one on a silver platter. And so will we choose to scramble around in the darkness trying to make it happen? Or will we live awake in a wonderful world that's alive with God's beauty and love and power, allowing happiness to come naturally to us? It's not easy to escape the madness of life and to be rooted and grounded in love, but the opportunity is in plain sight. And happy are those who see it, take a risk on it, and say, yes, I will. I see trees of green, red roses too. See them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, What a wonderful world! I see skies of blue, clouds of white, the bright blessed day. What is God inviting you into? You could sign up for the summer growth journey and let happiness come to you. Just see what those daily invitations are and come what may. You could try out a new happiness practice like silence and just see what happens. I hope we all would choose the third one. Stop hustling for our happiness. 
and let grace lead us and let happiness find us. If God has brought something to your mind that you would like to try or do, a hope that you might hold in your heart, I encourage you to use that Connect card. Um, It's powerful when we make a commitment, when we do something physical and tactile to mark a moment where we've made a decision. So if you want to check a box on that and drop it in the kiosk or send it in to us, I know that um, God will respond with grace and favor. Well, let's stand together. I want to pray a prayer of blessing. I said together. That's not really true. I'm not going to stand with you. I'm going to stay here in my, on my stool. <laughs> and I'm going to pray for you. I, I was inspired by the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. And that's the essence of this prayer. I pray that God would strengthen you with power through the spirit that's within you. May the spirit of Christ come alive in your heart through faith even when you're least expecting it. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in your own natural connection with God, would have power, together with all God's children, to experience the deep, deep love of Jesus and to experience joy in the ordinary moments of your life. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.